All right, good morning, everyone. Outside is kind of gloomy, but inside is just bright and cheery, and uh, all is right with the world. We are in Acts 6 today, and got a lot to cover here, and probably we'll get into a bit of chapter 7. We're at a, um, a very interesting point in the book of Acts. Actually, every point in the book of Acts is quite interesting to get to, but uh, in chapter 6 last time, we began to talk about the problem that came up in the church in Jerusalem uh, as numbers developed and uh, needs continued to multiply among the people. There uh, was created a, a problem among some of the widows of the Hellenist group, those uh, Jews who had been primarily in the diaspora uh, for many years and then had migrated, immigrated to uh, Jerusalem, to Judea, found themselves there and wound up in the church, and then some of their widows were being neglected in the daily uh, ministration, the needs of food and other uh, services that were uh, provided for them. And so to solve this problem, the apostles said in uh, verse 3, Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. Verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And so this was a solution that they came up with, which was a very good solution. Shows that they, uh, the apostles and the structure within the church at that time uh, had a kind of a quick react time to needs and, and uh, situations that came up so that they didn't get to become bigger problems. And so they said, you seek out from you seven men who have certain qualities, and we can't make sure, we, we can't deal with all of that because as apostles, they had a particular commission from, from Jesus to go and to preach the Word, and they said that we must give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the, of the Word. I'll come back to that in a minute. Let me just make a comment on verse 3 in terms of how they told the congregation to seek out from among you these men. Now, first of all, here's the directive. You find these men. And the text shows us then, beginning in verse 5, that they came back with seven men. The question always is, how did they do this? How did they determine who these seven men would be among the thousands who were affiliated with the church at that time? We don't know, obviously, from the text. But they, they, they got the job done. Did they interview candidates? Did they put out uh, billboards and posters, circulars throughout the congregation with a job description? Anyone interested, apply? Uh, is that what they did? Uh, if you think that you are full of the Holy Spirit and, and wisdom and of uh, good understanding and want to do this job, apply? Well, probably not exactly that way, but they knew each other. They had observed each other just as we do today in the church. We observe each other in a congregation, and we know who have, you know, with those with abilities and uh, distinct abilities of, as opposed to other uh, gifts that somebody else might have. We come to know one another. We know who are the workers, the worker bees. We know who gets there early to help set up the congregation uh, hall. We know who stays late and takes out the trash and is good at this and, and good at that. And we observe these things. Well, I'm, they did that too. Uh, I think uh, just understand that as an organization works, either in the ancient world or today, some things say the same. And so they, they um, 
they observed and they knew. Did they, the question comes up, did they vote on this? Did they get a, a short list? Uh, did they take re recommendations and then a select group or a committee that maybe a, a, a kind of generated as a search committee? Did they, you know, by ballot and vote on this? We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says that the saying pleased the whole multitude in verse 5, and they chose. They chose. And so by whatever means they chose to come up with these seven names, Stephen, a man full of faith, we're in verse 5, and the Holy Spirit, he's listed first, and he gets, he gets a little bit more pressed than the other six, notice. Uh, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now there's that, that um, um, name of the city, Antioch, which we will come back to later. And uh, they, they set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And so this, this selection process came out with seven men. And I have always used this in our years in the United Church of God experience as we have um, balloted, voted for uh, elders to the Council of Elders, and in some case, cases in congregational settings, even people to serve on uh, local boards. In the two congregations I pastored in United, uh, we had uh, local boards where the congregation voted to choose who sat on that, the board and the fiduciary role for the, the congregation. And we, kind of, we did set up a different type of governmental structure from the, uh, in a sense, from the, from the top all the way down to the local congregation in the United Church of God. Those two congregations worked well for me, for me and continue to work, work well. And we continue to do that at practice when it comes to selecting members of the Council of Elders. Then the Council of Elders selects, um, uh, will we'll ballot on a president and operations managers. Uh, and the entire council of El or general conference votes on not only the council but the business issues that come up before the the, uh, the ministry on an annual basis, and that has uh, that has worked for us in uh, in our 27 plus years in in United. They did something to to at least come to the selections that they did, and uh, anyone could read whatever I suppose they they want into that. But I think the operative phrasing is back in verse 3, that these men were to be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom uh, to appoint over this business. So they had to be reliable and, and, and tick all the other boxes to uh, be able to do this job. But we, what you're looking at are men who are selected to uh, a bit more than just taking out the trash and serving at the food line, to, to have... A good reputation, honest men of integrity, but also being obviously showing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so there are, there's, a, there's a, spirit, a big spiritual dimension here to this selection process of these men that we would typically call deacons as our, in our function today in the church. Although that word diakonos that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8 to talk about deacons and the selection of deacons in the church later when he writes this a pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy 3, uh, he uses the word diakonos there, which uh, has a, a broad meaning of, of service, servant, ministry, in, in the sense of ministering to or serving the needs within the congregation. 
That word is not used here in Acts 6, but in terms of the function of what these six are initially thought to be doing and, and selected for, uh, that is at least initially what the job description is, to wait on tables and to do a lot of the physical needs that come up uh, with, within the church. And so, um, one, other, one other point probably to, uh, to make regarding this is the, um, uh, the, what, what happens here uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the equipping, the edifying, the engaging, and the exhortation uh, aspect of um, things that we will uh, kind of see later on in some of Paul's writings as he talks about the functions of the church, especially in the book of Ephesians, um, in our strategic planning uh, in, the, in the council and the administration right now, we are working through what we call a, 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 the Ephesians framework to kind of frame a lot of the functions that we are doing within the, within the church. We're going through this, this um, strategic planning exercise now for more than a year in the, in the council with the, uh, with the work of the church. And as we look at what Paul later will write and does write in, in Ephesians, um, we, we discern that there's a, a need to equip people uh, with the, the means, the training, the talent um, uh, to help build up the church. Uh, there's, there's equipping the saints that Paul talks about. There is an edifying process, which means to, to build, build out, uh, to engage people. And the um, message of the gospel and to exhort. And in our planning, we start, basically, we start at the bottom of, of exhortation and engagement, edification and, and equipping. And we have a whole structure that kind of helps to see some of the flow of the work that we uh, need to be accomplishing out of a Scripture-centered framework. I don't have the time to go into it all here right now with you, uh, but it, it, maybe this serves as an introduction because it does apply to the church. And in, in, in regard to what we're going through here in Acts, understand that this, um, this is an in-depth study of so much, the, the stories of the beginning of the church, uh, the faith, their example, the doctrinal integrity of the church, but also the, 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 the doctrine about the church. What we're doing here in going through Acts is really an, a deep dive into the teaching or the doctrine, or as we call it, our fundamental belief about the church. Uh, I, will, I will cover that briefly in our fundamentals class, but the whole Acts session really is a deep dive as we go through the book of Acts to understand the church, its function, what it does, and that flows into your studies of the epistles of Paul as well. And so with that, just we'll, we'll keep circling back to it and, and think through. But this is a, a key step that is of, of organizational development that is taking place right now with, with what we see uh, by selecting these individuals. And so notice they set, it says in verse 6, they set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So we assume that the, and by understanding this that the apostles prayed about it, with probably the others that, let's, let's just for, uh, you know, just the purposes of discussion here, I'm, let's, let's say the, the committee of selection or the, um, the ad hoc type committee that 
that brought this, they bring them to the apostles in some type of setting. They all pray about it, and then they laid hands upon them. And we see this as, as a function uh, in, in Hebrews 6, the laying on of hands is listed as a uh, kind of a basic doctrine or teaching of the Bible. And we, we, see that we will see this in regard to the receipt of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and as, as we go deeper into the book of Acts here very shortly, uh, this, the, this ritual or rite of laying hands on someone is a very important part of or, or, ordaining someone to an office in the church, whether it's an office of a deacon or deaconess, a minister. Uh, we lay hands upon people when we anoint them, pray over the sick. We lay hands upon a child uh, at the blessing of the children ceremony that we do in the, the church. There's a, there's a symbol, symbol, symbolism there, and it goes back into the Old Testament with the priests and the sacrifices and the consecration of even the priesthood setting apart by the laying on of hands. We do, uh, you know, when we have the marriage ceremony, we uh, lay our hands upon the clasped hands of the two that are getting married. And so it's uh, much the same way as, as well. But it's a, it's, a, it's a setting apart for a special, consecrated, holy, spiritual purpose that, uh, that is done here. So what is, what is happening here, the apostles then confirm, they confirm, what the congregation, in whatever form they used, selected. This seems to be what is, what is happening here. Uh, the, uh, they, they confirm that. And uh, this is the structure, this is the governmental structure of the, of the church as it is here. And the apostles are the spiritual leaders of the, of the church in that way. And um, the, the act is done. Now let's go back to verse 5 just for a moment. I, I just want to call attention to... Uh, two names here. Uh, Stephen, who is the first one listed, a man full of faith. We're going to get uh, into his story, and it's brief and it's powerful when we get down to verse 8. Um, the, but there's only two of these seven that we hear any more about in uh, the book of Acts and uh, the, the, the New Testament. The first one is Stephen, and the second one is Philip. Now, this is a, a different Philip from the Apostle Philip. Uh, we call, let's call him the Deacon Philip. Okay? Uh, so there's two different Philips in, in the stories uh, here in the, in the New Testament. Uh, and we will encounter this Philip, it seems, later in the book of Acts when Paul comes back from one of his journeys and he stays with Philip and his daughters uh, for a period of time. We'll talk about that. And that will be... Uh, his story. We'll also see that Philip goes down to the city of Samaria in uh, chapter 8 and he does some evangelistic work. So it's the same Philip there. So we'll see him twice in the book of Acts um, as we get into it. Uh, and, and then Stephen. Now we don't know what happens to the others. They're just not mentioned in the narrative. So uh, those are the Stephen and Philip are the two that we, we focus, focus upon. And uh, Stephen is going to kind of be like a shooting star. He's going to rise and flame through the sky for a brief instant and then flame out because he's going to be martyred at the end of chapter 7 uh, when we read, read about his story there. And uh, so then, then that re re remains with, um, with Philip, um, so those two. The point is, as I made, the qualities that they were to look for in choosing these seven as I said, go far beyond just the physical 
gifts that they might have to serve the physical needs of the congregation, their spiritual qualities. And that does come out in what Philip does and then what Stephen does. They quickly, in a sense, uh, grow, shall we say, to use the scripture term, grow in grace and knowledge, and they uh, take on a deeper role of preaching and evangelizing. And so that, that too happens. I mean, even today, a person might have an ordination to an office of a deacon, but through a period of years, they continue to grow in understanding, and many deacons will become an elder. In the church today, becoming a deacon isn't a sure uh, sign that every deacon is going to be an elder. Uh, that has uh, been you know, shown through the years. Uh, we've had many, many fine deacons and deaconesses that have served through the years, and not everyone who's been a deacon eventually becomes an elder. Sometimes, uh, sometimes they do. Sometimes a person becomes an elder without even becoming a deacon. There's not a stepping, uh, step progression that we make within uh, the administration of this today, but we do have a distinct offices of a deacon and deaconess within the congregation, and the, the churches are always served quite well when people are put into those roles and they um, become leading servants within the church, and many serve faithfully for many, many years uh, in their roles in local congregations, day, week in and week out, and are just the, the pillars. Pastors can come and go at times, but deacons, deaconesses, a local, uh, an elder that is not a salaried elder, we used to call them local elders, but everyone is an elder, they just have different functions. Um, elders who are usually non-salaried non and uh, stay, you know, decades in a congregation along with the, the other uh, deacons and deaconesses and other leading members, they are the ones who provide the continuity in a congregation and are to be respected for that, and, and they should be as they, as they serve in, in, a, in a profitable way for the needs of the congregation. And every pastor that uh, comes in will be wise to evaluate the, the service team that, that is there and respect that, work with everybody in time. Tweaks and changes might be made, but uh, that should always be done with respect for uh, people and the congregation, the history, even some of the uh, uh, congregational traditions that, that come up so that, uh, again, unity and harmony and peace are preserved within a, within a local congregation. So every, every pastor needs to remember that. When he gets a, a, a new assignment, I always tell when we have a trainee sitting in the audience, I always make certain points to uh, pass along uh, wisdom uh, so that they know how to conduct themselves when they are in that particular role. But chapter 6 is a really, these first, first few verses give us a lot to, to build on. So if you've got any questions about this, uh, hold them for the end. We may, um, we'll hopefully have some time for that. Let's look at verse 7. As a result of this, you know, a little hiccup is stitched up, it's dealt with, and that's always good for the work the church has to do. Because it says then in verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied. So the teaching ministry, the, the work of preaching continues on. People are added to the church. Um, they were multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, keep in mind, by this time, the, the class of people within the Judaism, the Jewish community, 
uh, known as the priest, descendants of, of Levi, had uh, uh, grown, and, the, and even the, the descendants of Aaron and the, the uh, different responsibilities defined by those two back in, in the book of, of uh, Leviticus. Uh, but they had grown through the generations and multiplied, and you had thousands of people. Uh, so many so that you could not, all of them could not at one time be working within the temple precincts and, and those jobs, and they, they rotated through. There, there was a system to do that, and, but there were just large numbers of them. And among that group, that large group, some were obedient to the faith. We would interpret that to be that they, they joined with the disciples, they joined with the church. In, in that, and they um, continued to be, they were Jew, certainly Jewish by ethnicity, and yet they identified with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and the work that was being done and the hope of the resurrection and, and all the teaching of the apostles, um, they, they wanted to be a part of that. So we see that now some of them come in, into the, the church. Now in verse 8, the scene uh, shifts to the story of Stephen. And this is a remarkable uh, story here as to what he does. As I said, he becomes quite quickly, it seems, a bit more than, than one who's just serving tables. He's got abilities, and he has a ready understanding of the Scriptures and the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the Scriptures and, and to the Old Testament Scriptures per the teaching of the apostles. And it says in verse 8 that Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. By his teaching, by his example, uh, we, we don't know, did he, did he heal people? Uh, did he, did he lay hands upon people? It doesn't say. Um, we don't, you know, we're not told of him being, in a sense, uh, elevated to the position of an elder or anything like that. That's not said, and I don't, we don't know that even that type of structure was that fully developed at this point in the development of, of the church, but he, he just moves naturally, would seem, into a larger role where he, he is used of God. And it brings him into conflict now with a, a group of people uh, as he has, in a sense, been witnessing and engaging with them. Um, you know, I'll kind of call attention to what this word engagement means and what we're calling the um, Ephesians framework of, of uh, planning and operations for the work of the, of the church um, through exhortation, uh, which is, you know, teaching, so, like repent, repent and be baptized, which we read Peter said in, in Acts 2.38. That's an exhortation or a, an instruction, a direct command or teaching from the Bible that uh, through preaching people hear and we, we engage and, and then in, in time people become more involved and, and engaged. And engagement also has to do with how the church then works or engages people in dialogue, people with the gospel uh, as a witness, as a teaching, because that's what he's, he's doing here. It says in verse 9 that there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, 
disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke, through verse 10 here. Now, let's pause there and consider what we're, what we're, we're being told uh, with this. He, he is he's exhorting people because he's, he is um, full of faith and power. So he's an eloquent teacher, and when we read his sermon or his defense before the, the Jewish leaders, the high priest, it's evident. He has a, a ready command of the Scriptures. He's able to put it together in a story that makes his point in a beautiful, uh, dynamic way and powerfully convict people as he engages them. And he finds himself engaging in a synagogue with individuals. It's called the Synagogue of the Freed Men. Um, now, what, what are we talking about here? Let's kind of break this down. First of all, let's, let's look at the idea of a synagogue. I think all of us realize that a synagogue is, to this day, even connected with a place of worship of, within the Jew, Jewish faith. And it's a very, very old custom and tradition. And we read about it in the, throughout the New Testament, where Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, in His home city of Nazareth, He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he reads from the book of the law. That's in Luke 4. And throughout uh, the Old Testament, I mean the book of Acts here, we will see the Apostle Paul, when he is traveling throughout the, the regions of, the, of his journeys there in, in the Mediterranean area, he normally goes first into a Jewish synagogue scattered throughout all of these various locations. In Alexandria, he doesn't go there, but there's a synagogue there. In, in uh, Tarsus, of course, he's come from there. In Ephesus, uh, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, these places that we'll, we'll study, he goes first into the synagogue to teach, and it's on the Sabbath day. The synagogues were the, became among the, the scattered Jews called the diaspora. And I think all, all of you are familiar with that word, but everybody should uh, know that the diaspora refers to the uh, the scattered Jews uh, away from the, the Holy Land throughout the, the um, Mediterranean area as a result of what happened uh, at the time of Daniel and the beginning of the scattering of, of Judah at that time uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem. The Jews scattered all through the known areas of, of the Mediterranean and, and in time uh, with enough Jews in a particular city they would have enough to put together a synagogue, a group in a building where they would go to read the law, uh, to worship on the Sabbath day, and to discuss, to fellowship. Uh, it, it was a center of their identity as a Jew in these scattered areas. And there they would not only learn about the law, but they would also learn how to read the law. Um, our, our knowledge and our understanding of the synagogue's structure. It's quite a study in itself. And anytime you go to Israel and these other parts of uh, the, the uh, uh, Turkey and uh, Greece and uh, even into um, Rome where archaeologists have uncovered the, this part of the ancient world uh, in these areas, many, many different synagogues have been uncovered and found. 
and they are preserved and studied. And there's a great interest in doing that, obviously, from a historical, archaeological point of view among the, the um, Jews as well, to be able to kind of document this. But they set up these synagogues to perpetuate their, their identity as Jews in these Greek areas, Roman areas, during these years after the, the fall of Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian captivity and the, and the exile. And the synagogue becomes a dominant part of the life, of the Jewish life. And, and there people learned to, to read and uh, were, became very literate and even you know, adapted to the languages of their, their particular regions, especially the Greek area. And they became these, these spiritual, cultural uh, centers there. In Jerusalem, this is where this particular event takes place, we have now Stephen encountering some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, this was a synagogue with a special clientele or grouping of people. These were, uh, the idea of a freedman were people from the diaspora, Greek-speaking, uh, no doubt, but also uh, understood to have been people from these areas of, and, and these regions are, are, are mentioned, um, Cyrenians. That is in what is today northern Africa, uh, in the, uh, the, uh, the nation of, of Libya. Alexandrians, you should know that one automatically. That's from the city of Alexandria in Egypt, which was the city founded by you-know-who, Alexander the Great. And there was a synagogue there. Now, we're in the first century, so we're way past the, uh, the timing of the Septuagint, the writing of the Septuagint, which had been done in Alexandria, and the, the story there. Uh, Cilicia and Asia. Now, uh, Cilicia is interesting to note. I'll go back. I guess I should put uh, this back up here again to show this. Here's Cilicia. This is a region of Asia Minor uh, at, at the time. And if you look at the map very carefully, in Cilicia, you have the prominent city of Tarsus. Who was from the city of Tarsus? Paul. Paul, or Saul, is from the city of Tarsus. And that's uh, the larger city within the city of Cilicia. So we have uh, freedmen who are down in Jerusalem now from that area. And then it says Asia. That's typically understood to be the greater Asia or Asia Minor. And it could be people from Ephesus or from the city of Pergamum which was the first capital of the region of Asia in that time as well. And all these people have found, you know, people from those areas have found themselves now in Jerusalem. And they, several of them, and being freedmen, they, were, they had been granted their freedom from and granted a Roman citizenship. Uh, some could have been, um, you know, they were non-Romans non and then, given a citizenship. Some scholars speculate that the Apostle Paul was a member of this synagogue of the freed men. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but that's the speculation because Cilicia is mentioned, which is Paul's home area, and that he may have identified or been a part of this, which we're going to have been at the end of chapter 7 and have our first introduction to, to him. And it all stems from Stephen engaging with these individuals and disputing with them. And so um, I've got a particular slide I want to show at this particular time here. 
Um, this is um, an inscription on a stone from a synagogue in Jerusalem. It's called the Theod Theodotus inscription. Theodotus. Put that on the board here. Theodotus. The Theodotus inscription. That stone was discovered in an archaeological dig in the city of Jerusalem several years back, uh, 1913, more than 100 years ago, and in the city, what is called the City of David. And it has there, in that Greek lettering that you see on, on here, there's an inscription, um, and in there it says it is dedicated uh, to the rebuilding of a synagogue by Theodotus, and there's a reference in there to the phrase, synagogue of the freed men. Synagogue of the freed men, right on, on this um, uh, stone there, found in 1913. So we have an archaeological confirmation of what we're told here in, in Acts of a place and a synagogue of these uh, freed men. And it goes on there, it actually has a name of a, of a man named Vitenos, who belonged to a Roman family, suggesting that he was a Jewish man who lived in Rome, took a Latin name of his master when he was freed from slavery. And so again, this is the idea of the synagogue of freed men who had been slaves, Roman slaves, but had been somehow granted what is called manumission or their freedom from slavery, and then many of them found their way to Jerusalem. So it's possible, but not certain, uh, that this inscription on this stone comes from the same synagogue of the freed men that we read about here in, in Acts here written by, by Luke. At the very least, it gives us an archaeological confirmation for the existence of a synagogue a contemporary with, uh, with the book of Acts here and what, what we are being told. Now, this synagogue of the freed men, this next slide here, um, go back to this one right here, shows you kind of the location of it um, in the lower part of the city of David. This is where they found that inscription. Um, this particular map shows the, the spine or the hill south of the Temple Mount that uh, is called the City of David today. The larger buildings would have been parts of the, uh, one of them would have been probably the Palace of David. This is a scale model that is from the Israel Museum. And just off the, the picture at the top is where the temple is. So it's a view looking, in a sense, southward from the temple. And there's a, a box, and I'll bring it up just a little closer here, that is circled, uh, a red area with some red roof tiles. That's where they, they found the inscription. Uh, that we saw here that's in the Israel Museum. And that's where they surmise could have been the location of the synagogue of the freedmen identified in that pre prescription and possibly the same one referred here uh, by, by Acts uh, or in, in the book of Acts here. And um, uh, that's, that's kind of where it comes from. So it's a pretty neat thing. And it's a very helpful matter to be uh, seeing this. Um, and to, to know that that exists. Again, it's just part of the, the confirmation of so much from the biblical record that, that uh, archaeology does serve a, a purpose of, of doing so here. Um, so I think I've pretty well covered the, uh, enough of that. Stephen engages these people. Now verse 10 tells us, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. In other words, he knew his business. He showed up 
and he knew his lines, all right? He, he was prepared to discourse, to teach, to rebut, to uh, answer their questions and not be bowled over. He knew his Bible, which is, all, what, you know, is the goal for all of us to know our Bible. Those of you that have come here to ABC and um, those that are watching this class and seeking out every opportunity to uh, deepen their understanding of Scripture, we want to uh, be like the Bereans. We want to be searching the Scriptures daily about all aspects of, of the Word of God. Stephen was able to do that, and God's Spirit motivated him to give an answer for the hope that lay within him um, in fulfillment as well of the promise that Jesus said to the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say in that day, I will help you. All right, you will, you will be given the words. That, that, that is an ironclad promise from, from Christ. And we see that many times in the book of Acts and, and certainly here with Stephen. These, these members of this synagogue couldn't refute him and they're, what is it, envy? Jealousy, anger, things that get out of control when um, your identity is, is disrupted. Their identity was being disrupted, just like that of the priests and uh, other Jewish leadership was in the case of John and Peter when they were brought before them. Uh, because Judaism has been hundreds of years old, the traditions that, that have developed at this time, they know their word, they think they know it all, they're, they're on top of everything, and all of a sudden... Jesus comes, He upends it, His teaching. And then the church survives after His resurrection. And they can't, you know, find the body. And they cannot deny that there has been a resurrection. And so this is eroding the identity of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people down to the synagogue level. And they, they're, they're upset by that. And so in verse 11, they secretly induced men to say, quote, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they, they, they couldn't get the job. They couldn't answer all of his questions. They were not willing to yield to his instruction and to what, in a sense, was truth being presented to them. What do they do? They bribe people as false witnesses. They secretly induced men to say something. And, and this stirs up the people, the elders, the scribes, they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Notice what they charge him with in verse 11. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now that's, that is a phrase you want to keep in, in mind as we go through chapter 7 of Stephen's sermon and his defense. To, in a sense, to, we'll, we'll say, did he, was he guilty of that? Is that what he was doing? This is what they say he was doing that he was blaspheming Moses and God. But we're going to read his letter, not today, we won't have the time to do that today, but we'll get into it um, next week, next class. Uh, and he will, he will go through what his teaching is, and so we'll come back to this. So just make a marker at verse 11 as to whether or not Stephen does this. He doesn't, I'll tell you that. Uh, he respects God and he respects Moses, it is just that Stephen has come to another understanding of what has happened, a deeper understanding of what is taking place. And his sermon is a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece uh, in, in many ways. Um, 
Let me quickly just go down through verse 15. They bring him before the council. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Now we're going to see this come back on Paul later. He'll be charged right in the same area, the temple, Jerusalem, of teaching against the law. And um, James is going to say, you need to go up to the temple and you know, do the sacrifice with some of these others and kind of um, tamp down the rumors that are circulating about you that you're teaching against the law. He didn't. He, he never did. But Paul understood the law in a far deeper dimension with Christ uh, at the center of it all as a result of his, Christ's teaching and his, his, his um, uh, death and resurrection than he ever understood as a Pharisee. And Stephen, at this very early uh, time, he's, he gets it too. He begins to understand it. And so uh, they, they charge him of speaking against, against the law. Verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, and that place is the temple. Speaking of the temple, this is kind of where he is. Again, he's back up in the area where the Sanhedrin meets on the southern part of the, of the, of the temple there in Jerusalem, and that would have been right down in this southeast corner is where they surmise the Sanhedrin would have met on, a, on a, the area called the Royal Portico. And so when he says that, when he's charged here, uh, that uh, we've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place, speaking of the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So this is the formal reading out of the, of the charge against him. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now this, uh, no doubt, had come down to Luke as he later, years later, writes this. Luke wasn't there. So it's, a, it's an eyewitness account. Probably Luke has picked up. God leads and inspires him to put it into the, the record. And you can imagine whatever you want. I, I, I could have brought in some pictures of a kind of a beatific, angelic type face. Um, did, did a light hover over him or in the background? Um, I don't know what happened to um, indicate that. But I, I would take from the context when it says that verse, back in verse 8 that Stephen was full of faith and power. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 that God has given us a spirit of power. The Holy Spirit is the power of God. Stephen's manifesting that in his, in his ministry, and he's being led by that deeply, and he, he has faith. And that can, you know, in terms of how you look and the confidence that you give in a situation where one might be preaching or teaching or explaining to somebody that the conviction that comes out of the heart can, uh, let's say, just exude a confidence to someone who may be listening that you know, has all different kinds of reactions. It, it can kind of make a person just kind of quiet down their, their objection to the point where they listen and they see that this person is not going to be intimidated. He's not going to be put off. They see that he know, he's, he's erudite, he, he's got his facts, he's, he's speaking firmly with conviction, 
And they know that he's, again, he, he, he knows his stuff. And anything else, any other physical manifestation, uh, we'll just have to leave that to speculation and, and imagery and maybe the artists that will that always try to do these things with uh, certain biblical scenes. But they, it says that they, they looked at him intently, steadfastly. They fixed on him uh, at, at this point, and they, they saw the, the, the face of an angel. Now, again, what, what does an angel's face look like? Well, you go back to Ezekiel, Isaiah, and you see some of the uh, images that were given there of cherubs. And, you know, what, what's associated with some of those faces on some of those scenes out of Ezekiel? An ox, an eagle, a man, a lion. You know, those are compelling images. Um, I'm not saying that Stephen looked like any of those, but uh, it, it, it was, he, was, he was in charge in the moment. Let's just leave it at that. And he had their attention. Because as it opens into verse um, 1 of chapter 7, the high priest said, Are these things so? And then he launches in verse 2. So, the, so it, it, your turn. These are the charges. Defend it. Is it so? And he is invited to give his defense. And then he, he launches into it. And this is where we, we will pick it up next time and understand exactly the, what is said, and especially the, the background to it. Uh, there's a little bit of background to uh, what Peter, what uh, Stephen says of, um, about Abraham, Joseph, and Moses in this. Those are the three characters that he talks about. Then he talks about Jesus and, and God from the time of the burning bush to make his point. And it's anything but blasphemy against God or denying the law. It is taking God and the law and and what that temple represents to a higher level of understanding than anyone has done before in a remarkable message that does tie into certain historical uh, events that had taken place that we've already read about. And we'll go back actually to a couple of chapters to um, the statement of Gamaliel, and we'll even go back to a statement about the, the timing of the birth of Christ in Luke's account in Luke chapter 2 to understand the historical setting, which is important for so much of this here in the book of Acts. So we'll pick that up next class and um, have a solid hour to hopefully get through the, the sermon that, that Stephen gives at that time.